Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we speak to top data science leaders working in the industry today, and we talk to them about their journey, their lessons learned, what knowledge they can pass on to others and the next generation of data scientists. We also discuss with them data analytics, strategy, leadership, team building, getting value from machine learning and AI, stakeholder management, everything that you need to take your career to the next level. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope that you're having a wonderful week. Today, we have a great episode. We're speaking with Dr. Mark Van Richmenen. Mark is based in the Netherlands. He's a speaker, strategist, and author in AI, blockchain, and big data. He is also the founder of Dataflock. Dataflock is a one-stop source for big data, where he tells us a bit about it, and it has thousands of authors writing about how to drive innovation with data. Mark also tells us about the books that he's written in AI, big data, and blockchain, and about his PhD program that he recently finished, and also about cycling around Australia. It's a great episode. I hope you enjoy it. If you do, please share it with your friends. That would mean the world to me. Thank you so much. Here's the interview with Mark. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm speaking with Mark. Mark, thank you so much for making the time. I am so excited to have you on the show. How are you? I'm very good, Felipe. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be on the show. Too kind. At the beginning, I wanted to ask you, how did you get started in the data space? What was it that originally pulled you in? That's a very good question. I started originally in the data space about seven years ago when I started the predecessor of datafog.com, which was called bigdatastartups.com. And the idea of that platform was to sort of understand what was going on in the big data space, to sort of follow the different startups that are being created in the big data space. And over time, that sort of merged into Dataflock, which is now a full content platform covering all kind of topics around emerging technologies. But I've always been interested in analytics. I've been a consultant um, in the analytics space before that. So it's always um, got my interest on seeing how we can use data in organizations and how can we use data to improve processes and deliver better customer services. So uh, I guess it's always been with me and uh, I'm glad that I have found my niche in this area. Yeah, it's fantastic. What made you want to change from being a consultant to a entrepreneur in the space? Well, I always wanted to uh, start my own company, and, mm-hmm. and believe it or not, but uh, about eight years ago, I, I circumnavigated Australia on a push bike. And what? That's amazing. <laughs> you got to tell um, us more about that. Yeah, I'll sure do. And after that, I didn't want to work for a bus anymore, so I decided to, to start, for, start my own company. That's basically how my journey started. Were you thinking about it during the bike ride? Was it something that came to you then, the decision to do it at that point? Yeah, well, uh, during my bike ride, of course, you have plenty of time to think about everything, (laughs) which is good. But it also, I didn't really have the idea what kind of company I wanted to build during my bike ride, but I just really had the idea that I wanted to start my own company. That was one thing for sure. Yeah, you know, it's um, once we finished, we got back to Europe, started working on my own company, had my struggles up and down. But then, yeah, in the end, you, you get there and that's what you want. Wow. And tell me about the decision to do the cycle around Australia. How did that come about? 
That was something that we, um, a friend of mine, would be discussed in, in the bar. And, you know, these are these stories in the pub that you have when you uh, I love <laughs> have too, too much to drink. But then we actually made it come true uh, five years later. So uh, we talked about it for five years. And in the end, we decided to either we stop talking or we start doing. And then we uh, shook hands and we started preparing. And two years afterwards, we, uh, we actually did, did it. And how long were you preparing for it physically? Almost two years. So um, mm -hmm. the first uh, trip we cycled was um, 25 kilometers, I think. We were both yep, exhausted. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Completely wasted after that. And then over time, <laughs> we improved. And uh, in the end, uh, when we did it, when we cycled around Australia, we did 165 kilometers on average a day for 100 wow. days straight. That is uh, incredible. Yeah, so, it was an amazing experience. And it's um, Australia is a fantastic country. Um, and it's a beautiful way to see the environment and to learn about yourself and to meet fantastic and amazing people. I can recommend it for everyone who wants to have some spare months. Uh. <laughs> amazing. Were you living in Australia at the time? No, I wasn't. Oh, amazing. And where did you ride? Because you would have been doing sort of 15,000 kilometers or so, where did you ride? Yeah, we started in Cairns and then we went anti-clockwise straight into the outback, crossed 4,000 kilometers uh, to Broome in 25 days. And from Broome, went south to Perth, from Perth along the coast to uh, Albany, and then along the, the Nullarbor to Adelaide, and then along the coast from Adelaide to Melbourne, Melbourne, Sydney, Sydney Brisbane, and then Brisbane back to Cairns. Amazing. And what time of the year was the 100 days? Well, we started in June, so we started in the Australian winter. Oh, um, wow. Because otherwise it was, um, we did try to organize and prepare ourselves um, correctly because uh, that way we had at least uh, in lower temperatures, but it was still 40 degrees in the outback. And we had the wind uh, sort of with us, which is uh, major wind flows sort of go anti-clockwise around Australia that helped us to have a lot of, uh, of tailwinds as well. Made our right. life a little bit easier. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, you would have been thinking that every day. Amazing. And then after that, your life took a stronger turn into the data space. How have you seen it evolve during that time? When I first got in, in into the big data space, it was in 2012. There was really, the, yeah, almost the new kid on the block. You know, everyone was talking about mm -hmm. it, but nobody had really an idea what it really meant. And, you know, everyone was saying they were doing it, but nobody was really doing it. Um, yes. I think that that's you know, over time it, it has matured. It's now something that we that organizations uh, see the, the importance of. Um, it, it did take a lot longer than I expected. I thought by 2015 most big organizations would have mm. a clear understanding of what big data would be and how they could benefit from it. But that, that took a lot longer. I think you now start to see organizations really becoming a data organization. And by my new book, which is actually coming out this week, called The Organization of Tomorrow. Is about um, how every organization is becoming a data organization and that you need to become a data organization if you want to remain competitive in today's fast-changing world. A hundred percent. But the, obviously the question is, how do organizations make that change when they've had such long-established cultures and processes that are not data-driven? How can companies change to the new world? Well, that's a very, uh, very important question, and a question I get asked a lot by organizations. Uh, it was also sort of the the, uh, the research of my PhD, which I I, I did in, in, again in Australia. I finished it uh, a couple of months ago in in Sydney. During my research, I looked into how technologies such as big data, blockchain, artificial intelligence are changing organizations and how they can benefit from these technologies. And I turned that into my dissertation. I turned that into a book. And within the book, I've also discussed a new model that I've created, which is called the D square plus A square model, which basically 
basically means if you want to become a data organization, you need to datafy your processes. You need to distribute your data either through the cloud or through blockchain. You need to analyze your data using descriptive, predictive, and prescriptive analytics. You need to automate your processes and customer touch points using AI and smart contracts. And if you use these four steps of datafying, distributing, analyzing, and automating, then you are becoming uh, slowly a data organization. You can do that for small processes within, like sub-processes within the business, or you can do that for uh, the organization as a whole. And I think that, that's where you, how you can start with uh, becoming a data organization. That's fantastic. Uh, how did you find it going into a PhD program once you had already had a such a good career? I think it's an amazing experience. And I think if everyone you know, has a chance to take a deep dive into a certain topic for two to three years, I've completed my PhD in two and a half years. Um, I think that is an amazing experience in itself to be able to really take a deep dive into a certain topic and learn and benefit from that for me it was a fantastic experience and I'm, and all the lessons learned during my phd i tried to incorporate in my company dataflog as well and into the, into the keynotes that i give around the world to help organizations uh, yeah benefit from these technologies so it's a, it was a fantastic experience and i'm i'm really happy that i did it and do you recommend it for people to go back and do a PhD once they've built up a, a career? Or do you think it's better to do it early on as most do? I think that differs per person, and by, but I, I would think it's better if you have a bit more experience because then you have a better understanding of how, how organizations work. Of course, it also very much depends on what kind of PhD you do. You know, If you're doing a PhD in physics or in, in computer science, maybe it's easier to just go straight from your master. But for me, it, it was useful to do it, to first have some work experience and use that and take that experience with me while doing my PhD. I'm so glad you're saying that because that is exactly what I've been thinking about. I've been thinking about going back and doing a, a PhD and it's great to hear that somebody has done it and sees it as a good experience, beneficial experience, and somewhere where you can leverage the experience that you've developed in organizations over time, that that can be leveraged through a PhD. So I yeah. think it's a yeah really good, really good alternative that you're showing me, and obviously the audience as well. Yeah, um, well, inspirational, I'm, uh, right? Well, it's, it's good to hear, you know, and I, I hope you pursue it because it's difficult. It's a very challenging thing to do. It's a very lonely job to doing a PhD because it's only you who does it. But it is, um, it's a great experience and I really, really enjoyed it. Great to hear. And tell me, with your methodology of becoming data-driven, do you recommend that companies take small steps into implementation, as you were saying, looking at sub-processes or small areas? Or do you think better to go with a big bang? How, is, how would you like to see that being rolled out? I think you should never go with a big bang. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to all of a sudden become a data-driven organization. You need to do that step by step. Start small, have a clear understanding of what's going on, uh, do some pilot processes, uh, uh, projects, and go from there. And it's a bit like uh, what I always say is uh, when we compare to um, artificial intelligence. You know, artificial intelligence is very difficult, abstract concept to grasp for a lot of people, a lot of organizations. What does yes. it mean? How to start with it? How to embed it in your organization? Where can you use it, etc. If you want to bring AI into your organizations full-fledged all of a sudden, you will fail. That will never happen. That will not, will not work. You need to step, make small steps. So therefore, I always compare uh, AI to Lego. When we were small, you know, we played with Lego. At least I did. I yes, played a lot with Lego. I, I loved it. You know, it's very good for your creativity and you can come up with all kinds of cool things. But the comparison between AI and Lego is actually really interesting because Lego, you have like, a, I don't know, 100 types of different blocks and they are all, all compatible with each other. 
They all have a minimal tolerance of, I think, about a couple of nanometers, you know, extremely small fault tolerance. And every block ever built is compatible with every block ever to be built. And it's only up to your creativity what you can build from those blocks. And that's the same with AI. You want your algorithms, your AI components, your AI systems to be very, very small and be very, very specific and very, very good at a very, very narrow domain and then be compatible with all the other AI systems so that together you can create something which is really awesome. And that's sort of the, how I ex- always explain uh, trying to accommodate a different organization is start small and make sure that whatever you do is compatible with the other projects. And it's up to your creativity and, of course, also the funds that you have available to do so to build something that is beneficial for your customers, for your organization, and for your shareholders. That's fantastic. I think that's a a very modern way to look at how AI can be brought to life into organizations by having the piecemeal approach that obviously in, I guess, software development at least is very popular through microservices, but it's not necessarily being thought of like that for AI and having different AIs interacting with each other to automate and improve the business processes in an organization. It's a really good approach. Do you have any examples of how it's been rolled out or implemented or how you envisage it? Well, I think, let's say if you want to automate your customer services, you know, there are a lot of different ways that you can automate your customer services. And one of the ways could be, you know, having a, having a chatbot, but building a chatbot that is capable of completely replacing your customer service call center agent is impossible, you know? Um, so you need a, a, a chatbot, which is very good, for example, let's say if you're a bank, uh, which is good at savings products. And then maybe from there on, you can add a component for your payments or for your cards, etc. And from there on, you can slowly expand the product by adding different components and different algorithms, different systems to becoming a better chatbot over time. And I think that's sort of the idea behind it is that you can have this massive vision. I want to completely automate my call centers. But doing that from scratch is impossible. So you need to start with small components and constantly start adding data to that, adding services, AI systems to that. For example, the chatbot has a better understanding, slowly gets a better understanding of the context and from there on can give better advice and slowly can start replacing your call center agent. I think the key component here is context. If you want to have an understanding of what's going on in your environment, whether it's your call center agent for your chatbot, whether it's your manufacturing, your factory, whether it is your retail uh, stores, it's all about the context. You need to understand the context and how do you get an understanding of the context is through data and is through multiple data sources that are being linked to each other so you get a better overview of what's going on. So it's, you know, together with AIs like Lego that you have different AI systems connecting to each other and you also need to have different data sources being connecting, uh, being used and being connected to each other so that you can understand this context and from there on you can start to improve your business processes. Amazing. What do you see as the key barriers holding us or holding organizations back? I think there are three ways. I think it's technology. A lot of this technology uh, still needs uh, needs to be developed. It it is that you know we can see the need uh, and see and understand what kind of AI systems we want, but those still need to be developed. 
and that takes time and it takes the um, money and it takes uh, um, you know the, the right people to do so. That's one thing. Uh, the second one is then of course the, the skills, having the right skill set. AI developers, data big data scientists are scarce, especially the ones that are really capable because you need industry experience as well. So if you are in a niche industry, it becomes more difficult to find the right people. And finally, I think um, it's culture, company culture. If you have uh, real time insights and a better understanding of the context, that changes how you can see and how you have to respond to that. So like for example, in the past you had a your business intelligence reports came in once every month. So you had to mm. take action once every month. But now uh, these reports come in in real time. So you have to respond in real time. And you can start to empower your, your employees with the right data. And that takes a, a different culture. And I think that's often the most difficult thing to change. Definitely. I was keen to ask you more about that. Do you think that this type of change is something that employees and organizations are looking for, waiting for, excited to take up? Or do you think it'll be something that needs to be more pushed and driven, I guess, into the organizations? I think that it really depends on what kind of organization you are. Uh, some organizations uh, are very good at accepting this change and some are not, you know. And uh, you have, of course, the famous examples of Kodak and Border and, and everything. Who, uh, for example, Kodak, who invented digital photography, but then didn't do anything about it. It really depends on how your company is structured, how, what kind of culture you have. If you already have a culture where people are empowered to do things, to experiment, to come up with new solutions. And if you have that culture embedded already, then it's easier for you to change. True. And in during your PhD, did you get to interview companies or see how they were approaching this problem? Yes. During my PhD, I did like two different types of data research. One was um, based on existing papers. So I used natural language processing to understand and see concepts between existing papers on nice. big data, which was uh, basically did big data on big data, which was kind of interesting. Yeah. And the other one was um, I interviewed about 20 organizations on who developed a, a chatbot and how they went about developing the chatbot and implementing the things around the chatbot. So that was the other research that I did. Wow. And what were the different findings from the two approaches? So for the first paper, because uh, my PhD was in, uh, I did a PhD by publication, so I wrote three different papers. And my first paper was on understanding how organizations use descriptive, predictive, and prescriptive analytics, and how they were using these type of analytics. And for example, uh, one of the findings was that descriptive analytics is predominantly used to um, sense the environment, to better understand what's going on in the environment. Predictive analytics is predominantly used to sort of seize the opportunities that you have sensed and sort of improve your decision-making. Uh, not only have a better understanding of what's going on in the environment, but also take action to do something uh, about it. And so the other paper, which was on, on chatbots and, and also on how to make sure that you create AI that is sort of ethical, what looks from a different perspective. And I researched organizations, interviewed organizations, how they developed their chatbot, how they make sure that the AI did what they wanted it to do and how they prevented bias in the chatbot, etc. So it, 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 they had these two papers had a different approach. And my third paper was on blockchain, but that was very much a conceptual paper looking on how you can use big blockchain, change the organization design and change how companies can work together within the supply chain. Really interesting. And obviously, blockchain has a huge promise of benefits for supply chain, but they have been quite difficult to bring into reality. Why do you think that is? I think the, the benefit, the beauty of blockchain for supply chain is, and I actually think it's going to, blockchain is sort of the gold standard for supply chain. It's going to be the gold uh -huh. standard because uh, with 
a blockchain is useful if multiple people are working together and there's sort of a trust issue. So if you are a multinational organization that just has business units across the world, but it's all within one organization, there's absolutely absolutely no need for a blockchain. But if you're working with different types of organizations in the different parts of the supply chain who need to trust each other or when there's are transactions going back and forth, then you want to use a blockchain because you want everyone to have the same data available to understand and to have what's going on. As an example, if you, I think what they say is that if you want to send flowers from one part of the world to the other part of the world, you need a stack of papers which is as high as the flowers that you're sending, hmm. Um, hmm. which, you know, if you think about it, is completely ridiculous. And yeah. with blockchain, you can put that all, all that data on the blockchain. Everyone knows that the data on the blockchain has not been tampered with. Uh, you can track and trace everything so you can see the provenance of how the flowers move to the supply chain who was involved at what moment what was done etc and that simplifies the entire extremely complicated supply chain that we have in the world to a major extent blockchain is like for me the natural solution the natural the holy grail for supply chains to help organizations work better and more efficiently in a more secure and trusted way with each other very interesting what about the data capture side That's something that I've seen as one of the difficulties that say when you're moving grain or something, that the grain needs to be, you know, weighed at different points in time. It needs to make sure that the contents haven't been tampered with, that it's the same quality grain, that it's held at certain conditions. All the information essentially requires an IoT network, a network of sensors to be capturing this data in real time as the physical goods are, are moving. What type of improvements or developments have you seen on, on that piece? Well, that's why I think also the uh, blockchain and, and IoT is also a, a natural combination. Um, if you have, I don't know, perishable goods, you send them in, in a container or across the sea, you want to be sure that the temperature within those containers is within a certain range. And if it is not within a certain range, automatically the buyer pays less for the goods received. Uh, with The combination of blockchain and IT, that is possible because you can know that the temperature has indeed been within a certain range or not. And if it hasn't, then using smart contracts, automatically the buyer pays less. It creates this, this efficiency improvement while also providing more trust because I know, if I can check, that the goods were indeed within a certain temperature range. I think that that's really good. So the combination between blockchain and IoT, there are a lot more other ways that they can benefit from each other. But I think having this provenance of not only the goods, but also of the data is mm. extremely valuable. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a huge improvement on terms of even just data provenance, a huge improvement to what we have today. Really interesting stuff. When you were doing the research for your PhD and your book, what were some things that really surprised you? Something that you didn't expect that it was going to be the way that it was? What jumped out at you during the process? I think what jumps out to me is that that's still organizations have a lot of difficulty with implementing these technologies within their business. And that is due to the, the different reasons, challenges I, I mentioned earlier, so uh, technology, skills, and culture. But I think it, it's remarkable how often organizations, yeah, maybe not the, the, the big Fortune 500 companies who have a lot of money to implement these projects, but it's a lot of organizations have still difficulty with getting this off the ground. And for me, I'm so at the forefront of technology. I see what I see all the time, what is happening and what is available, what's possible. And then sometimes you come across organizations which are still in not using those technologies. And that sort of, it took a lot longer than I expected. That sort of surprised me, I think. 
that the adoption has taken longer than expected? Yes, 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 correct. Mm, yeah, I agree. Why do you think that is? Well, that, I think that is because of the three reasons that I mentioned. The technology is, is more difficult to develop. You need the skill sets, which uh, you know people are rare to find, difficult to find, and you need to do the culture change, which is difficult. You know, when, whenever people need to change, that always takes time, and it always yeah. takes more time than you expected initially. And I guess that's sort of the same with what happened to me, is that I would expect people to move faster, which didn't happen. But I think that's sort of the reality of life. <laughs> Things just take longer than expected. It's true. It's so true. And do you think that there's a piece around the applications that are chosen to be tackled in the organizations? What I mean by that is the, the specific focus in which the technologies would be applied to. So what to do with AI? What to do with blockchain? It's, of course, you can only spend your money once. So if you decide to either move towards... If you decide to move towards... Chatbots, for example, you can't move towards automating your factory. You can only spend your money once. And it's, so it's very important for you as an organization to determine where you want to go to, which direction you want to automate or to improve your processes. And having, starting really, really small and doing some proof of concepts here and there will help you determine what the effects are of those different changes. Yeah. So instead of fully automating your, your call center department and or your manufacturing department, you do very, very small projects within both to see what the benefits are, what the gains are, what the costs are. And based on that, you can make a decision where you want to start. And you can't start and automate your entire organization from scratch. So you need to decide what is the, the best area, what are the best processes within your business to start with automating. And I think that the best way to find out about that is, is doing small, very small proof of concepts, quick proof of concepts that you can easily see and extrapolate from there what the benefits are. Totally agree. How did you manage your time while you were doing your PhD and running a business, advising other organizations, being a faculty member. How did you juggle all these things? Work very hard and efficient, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I'm a fast worker. I work really fast, whatever I do. Uh -huh. For my work, as I said, I gave keynotes and workshops around the world. I fly a lot. A large part of my PhD was written in planes, which uh, for me is the best place to work because there's no distraction. I absolutely love working in planes. And I think what was very important to me is as well was that I, whatever I do, so during my PhD, I was doing several things. I, I did my PhD. I worked on Dataflog. I did my keynotes. I wrote another book which was separate from my PhD, but they all were linked to the same topic, meaning emerging technologies such as big data, blockchain, mm -hmm. and AI. And so whatever I was doing in my own company, Dataflog, was useful in my PhD, which was then useful in my keynote business, which was then useful in writing the book. It's all connected. If they were all four totally separate subjects, I don't think I would have been able to. But because they were so much connected to each other, that really helped. Amazing. Very, very smart way to go about it. What is your other book on? In total, I've written three books. My first book uh, was published five years ago, which is called Think Bigger, How to Develop a, a Successful Big Data Strategy for Your Business. So really focus on big data, what is big data, and how can you use big data for your organization. My second book was is called Blockchain, Transforming Your Business in Our World. I co-wrote that with uh, Dr. Philippa, Philippa Ryan from Australia. She's a barrister, and we got together to sort of look into how can we use blockchain to not only make more money, but also improve our world. You know, how can we use blockchain 
to solve the identity crisis that we have, to solve poverty, to reduce climate, the effects of climate change, to get rid of corruption and fraud, to improve our voting mm. processes, to improve fair trade, uh, to improve democratic processes, etc. Really looking into how can we use this fantastic technology, this fundamental new, new technology, which some say is a bigger invention than the internet mm. or even the machine how can we use this technology to improve our world i really enjoyed writing that book it's a very positive book so how can we use this technology to to make a better world and then my third book sort of brings it all together where i discuss how you can use big data i can use blockchain i use ai and how you can change your organization i can use these technologies to create the organization of tomorrow hence of course the name of the book the organization of tomorrow fantastic very well done in terms of the structure and the order very well, well done. Tell me, what led you to start Dataflock? What was your vision for it? It originally started, as I mentioned, uh, as BigDataStartups.com, which is a very basically a simple blog around big data startups. And that merged into a content platform called Dataflog, where there are around 500 authors from around the world now that, that write articles on these technologies where you can find companies, where you can find talent, events, those kind of things. And I'm about to make a, to do a major release in the coming, hopefully, month, two months, where we will go another step further on the one hand, simplify the platform, but we'll also move more towards sort of a reputable content platform. And what do I mean with that is that, that, that I find it important that we need some sort of a accountability on the internet. You know, I think the internet is fantastic and it's great that we have anonymity, but the problem is that we don't have accountability. And I think those two can go together very, very well thanks to the new technologies at blockchain or zero knowledge proof. So with Dataflog, I'm working on making a transition towards a more reputable content platform where your the articles that you write, write, the content that you produce sort of contributes to the reputation that you have. And while doing that, you can still publish content anonymously because I think that is important, but you will be held accountable for the content that you produce. And uh, to achieve that, we are launching a minimum viable product soon, which is sort of a browser plugin, which allows you to rate content based on quality, fake news, and plagiarism. So articles get a reputation score, and that links to authors getting a reputation score. And then we also incorporate a search engine, which allows you to find articles based on the quality of the article, based on the fake news probability, the plagiarism probability, as well as based on the reputation of the author. Sort of an uh, IMDB, but then for articles, which interestingly enough doesn't exist Yet. Mm. If you want to find the best author on blockchain or whatever, it's extremely yeah. difficult. You have to read all those articles by yourself and figure out who might be the best author. With our new service, you can just type in blockchain and instantly find the best author on that, in a topic. Incredible. And that's you said that's coming out in the next couple of months. Yes, correct. Amazing. And so I'm um, very excited about that. <laughs> so exciting. So exciting. And is there a name that you can reveal or, or somewhere people can find it? It will be revealed under the brand of, of Dataflog. But the, the platform that we want to move to uh, is called Imagine at the moment. Uh, at some point, maybe it will be called Imagine, but not sure yet about that. But for now, we use uh, the working title Imagine as the platform that we are wanting to launch. That's fantastic. And for that to work, would content creators have to publish in the Imagine platform? No, they can publish anywhere around the world, anywhere on any website. 
So with the browser plugin, which as I said, will be launched under the Dataflow brand. If you read an article anywhere on the web, you can just click the browser plugin and you can read the content. If that author of that article has verified their account, because we need sort of to make sure that you are who you are, and you are indeed the owner of that article, that article and the quality score of that article is linked to your rep- your profile as an author. And there, from there on, you can start to build a reputation score as an author. But you can publish anywhere on the world on, on the web. It doesn't matter. You don't have to publish on Dataflow. I'm so impressed and I'm so excited about this plugin and product. Yeah, I think it's going to be excellent. Really, really good. I also wanted to pick your brain on privacy of data in more obviously at the moment and, and how that this is able to change with use of blockchain. What are your views on that side? I think privacy is a bit problematic at the moment. We hear all these stories about now, again, with Alexa, with Siri, uh, or Google uh, listening in to what people do, and even uh, people having sex. You know, I think that's a problem. And I think we need to be able to trust organizations. The way I look at privacy is, and the way I look at data sharing is, I have absolutely no problem of sharing my data with a company. As long as I am 100% confident that my data is protected, secure and not misused for things that we didn't agree upon that's the same like my partner i tell her things and i don't want which is data but i don't want her to tell this data to her friends you know for example i have this agree sort of you know mutual understanding mutual agreement with your partner that you're not going to share whatever you say to each other to the entire world and that's sort of the same thing you need to have with an organization if i have an agreement with, let's say, Apple uh, that I use their products and I want them to use my data to improve the product. That's all good, I think. As long as I'm certain that my data is secure, that if the company gets hacked, that I'm confident that nobody can access my data or my personal information. They only use it for the things that we agreed upon and that whatever they want to use it for, I can understand that they use it for those purposes, that that's an easy, that the terms and conditions are easy to read and easy to understand that I no, okay, you're going to use that for A, B, C, D, E, and F, but not for G and H. That's important, and that's not happening, those things. So what we see at the moment happening is I think that we're going to be getting a shift in the coming decade or so, or the next two decades, where we move from the companies being in control in, of our data, which obviously they can't, because they time and time and again have mm. proven that they can't be trusted with our data because they misuse it, they don't secure it properly, or they sell it without our consent, etc. So we're moving towards a society, I think, where the consumer will own the data. And the consumer will tell and say how that data can be used. And it can be that they say, Apple, you can use my data, but you have got to pay for it. And government, you can use my data for free because I need to give it to you because I need to do my taxes. That's part of the agreement I have with my government. And charity acts, I like what you're doing and I believe in your cause. So I'm not giving you money, but I'm giving you my data and you can use that to whatever achieve your cause, whatever the, that you are trying to achieve. And if you don't, an organization, why? If you don't fill your promises, I'll just take my data and go somewhere else. And that's, I think, the future where we should go to, where you empower consumer a lot more with the data and that they are in full control. Really, really great. That is exactly what we need. It will be fantastic. It's challenging to get there. Uh, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the web, is, is working on there are a lot of companies working on it. But he's what I what he's developing is, is very interesting. Is he's developing sort of so-called solid pods, which are these personal data stores where you can store any data, your wearable data, your social media data, your email data, whatever you can think of, and you control who gets access to the data at what moment, mm. for how long, for how much, when, where, and why. Wow, I didn't know that. That is exactly what we need. 
I'd like to change gears a little bit and I'll ask you a few rapid fire questions. The first one is with uh, oh, the first one. I'm so curious about your answer, actually. With everything that you've done in your career, such an accomplished journey so far, what are you most proud of that you've done in your career? I'm pretty proud of my three books. I think that's pretty cool that I managed to write three books as well as my PhD. My PhD is, um, above all, an individual intellectual challenge, and it's extremely difficult to do. So from uh, I'm very proud of that, that I managed to do it and succeed within in a short time frame. And I'm very curious to see where Dataflock is heading to with the new the pivot that we're making, and hopefully that will have a positive contribution to the world. Oh, definitely. I am inspired by your PhD and <laughs> your writing, and I am excited about the Dataflock pivot and products that are a product that is coming up. Tell me, what excites you most about this field? Why do you love it? I think what excites me most is the fact that when we talk about data and when we talk about software products or digital products, uh, anything is possible. It's just a matter of how much money you have, how much creativity you have, how much time you have, have at hand. But in the digital world, to me, anything is possible. And that's extremely exciting. You know, it might take a couple of years to figure out how, how to do it. But to me, it's exciting that, that almost anything is possible in the digital world. That really excites me. It is. That's incredible. That's so exciting. I've got a tough one for you, or maybe a tough one. It's about failure, past failure, and whether there's been a failure that you've had in the past that at the time you thought it was, you know, it was a failure, but then you saw that it helped you get to greater success. Did you have something that looked like an apparent failure, but then it actually helped you become better to get to higher levels? Yeah, I think so. I think failure is important because it, you know everyone fails at something Anyway, I think if you did, it matters how you deal with failure, whether you can turn it into success or not. You know, one of the failures is, is that I had is a former co-founder of a company that it didn't work out. And at that time, I was really, you know, uh, frustrated about that also by how it didn't work out. In the end, it helped me. It forced me to change strategy. And it forced me to change my past. And that eventually brought me to where I, where I am now with three books and a PhD and a platform that's doing quite well. So maybe it was a good thing that it happened. It wasn't the fun thing that it happened, but maybe it was a good thing. And I think it's these kind of things always happen. You know, failure comes in a variety of ways and it's never fun, but it, I think it always is a good lesson. Spot on, I think. Um, very great perspective. I'm glad that it's helped you um, get to greater heights. Definitely a tough experience, but yeah, very well done as a result. The next one is about something that you touched on with a couple of your answers, but maybe we can bring them all together. It's about the future challenges that we have coming up in this space. What are some of the challenges that you see that we'll have to tackle in the next, say, five, ten years or, or longer? The challenges are multiple, many challenges. But I think, you know, privacy is a massive challenge. How do we ensure that we keep our private, that we ensure our privacy? And at the same time, how do we ensure accountability online? The beauty of the internet having anonymity brought with it massive downside of fake news, plagiarism, online harassment, digital cyberbullying, and many more. And I think we need to solve the issue maintaining anonymity, but being accountable. And with the pivot of Dataflog, I mm. think we have sort of cracked nuts how to do so from a conceptual perspective, and we're not trying to figure out how to do it from a technical perspective. But I think that is sort of the challenge. How can we be create a web where people can be anonymous? Because I think anonymity is very, very important, but you also should be accountable. The same in the street. You can, if you are 
sort of anonymous on the streets. But if the moment you start shouting or harassing people, you will be held accountable. And that's good because those things should not be done. We should treat each other in a nice way, etc. But unfortunately, on the internet, you can harass whatever you want. And you can use bots to have an effect on elections, etc. And I think that's a major problem of how we develop the internet. And we need to solve that. That's a massive challenge. But I think it is something that we need to solve. Totally agree, actually. How, during your career, how have you become better at choosing what to do, what to work and focus on? And I ask you this because through your career transition, through the companies that you've created and been involved in, through the books that you've written, there's just such a, a strong strategic perspective that has come through as a strong theme that you're, I think, you're constantly looking into, well into the future and planning big challenges or taking on big challenges at a time that in sequence, they seem to snowball and become bigger and bigger by essentially like the fuel that you're putting into the fire. That is a fantastic design of a career that you've done, in my opinion. That's why I wanted to ask you, how have you become uh, better at choosing or prioritizing through your career? Oh, first of all, thank you for saying that. I'm glad to hear that. I think for me, what I always do is I do what I enjoy. A slogan I've had for a very long time is great dreams deserve to be pursued. If you want to do something, whatever it is, big or small, you should pursue that. We only live once and it's over before you know it. And, you know, you better have a good idea about what you want. There's a book I read about eight years ago or so, I think, or longer, I can't remember. It's called The Big Five of Life. And for me, that book really helped me because it sort of looks at your life as if going on a safari. If you go on a safari, your objective is to see the big five. And yes. you judge the success of your safari based on whether or not you've seen the big five. And if you had a fantastic safari, but you've only saw three of the big five, uh, you're like, yeah, yeah, it was okay. You know, it, was, it was okay. We didn't see all the five. So yeah, it was quite okay. But if you've seen all five of the big five, which is really special, you're like, wow, you know, it was amazing. You know, I got to see the big five. You know, that's awesome. And this book sort of describes that you should look at your life the same way. You know, what are the five things in life that you want to achieve to when you are 80 or 90 or whatever years old, uh, you can look back and you can judge your life based on those things. And that's sort of how I live my life. I came up with the five that I value. And one of them is being inspiring people and helping people move forward. And that sort of yeah, really helps me in doing what I do. But above all, you should enjoy what you do. And if you don't enjoy what you do, you should quit whatever you're doing immediately <laughs> because it's a waste of your life. Very true. Are you able to share what are the other points that made your big five list? Yeah, sure. I want to inspire people. I want to travel the world extensively if possible because I uh, like to see the world, explore the world. I want to build a, a big, successful company, which I'm hopefully you know, succeeding with Dataflock. I want to build, of course, a nice family. And I want to do something for the environment as well at some point. How that exactly would look like, I'm not sure. But I do value Earth very much. And I think we should take care a little bit better of our of our only planet that we have. So it's um, those are, in a nutshell, the, the five that work for me. It has helped me understand stand and live the life that I live. And as I said, above all, enjoy the things that you're doing. Amazing. What I find really interesting about your big five is that they're not milestones. They're not things that can be checked off and say, I'm done. But that they're an infinite game in the sense of there's always something that you have to do on that front and that you can put energy in and renew, whether it's, you know, inspiring people or building a beautiful family. Like it's not a checklist as in something no. that can be completed. Was that choice deliberate? 
Um, not sure. These are the things that I find important. You know, you can see one lion, but you also can see like 20 lions. You know, you can check, mm. I saw one lion and then go home, you know. But it's a, they're such a beautiful creature. So if you can see 20 lions, <laughs> you know what I mean? These are things that you should never, well, maybe, you know, building a, a successful business, yeah, you can check it off. You know, yes, I've done that and that's awesome. But then maybe you can build another business, yeah? These work for me and maybe they don't work for everyone who will have their own big five, whatever they will be. But for me, these work. These help me live my life and pursue the things that I deem important, which is often, you know, especially being an entrepreneur, is difficult. It comes at very high highs, but also very low lows. That's very challenging at times. And then these kind of things, these five that I have in my mind sort of keep me going in, in trying to achieve what I want to achieve. Very true. I do have to ask you, in the roller coaster of entrepreneurship, how have you learned to better handle the lows that they're you know sometimes they come so fast and they're so pronounced how have you got better at handling the lows i think it, it helps to discuss them with your friends and with your partner and you know share you don't have to deal with them alone that really helps you sort of start to also get to see when you are in a low you notice when you are in a low and you sort of can then okay i've been here before okay i know what you know you learn from from them as well so but yeah it's that those are not fun things of entrepreneurship they're part of it the opposite thing is that the highs are really high and that can be really cool you know very exhilarating mark this has been an absolute pleasure i only have one last question for you i wanted to ask you for a piece of advice for the listeners something that could help them in their career what is something that you would like to leave them with well i think what i would like to leave as an advice is which is my sort of my slogan that i that i have always have in my back of my mind you know your great dreams to deserve to be pursued if you have a dream whatever it is i think you should do whatever it is to pursue that if you want to start your own company, start your own company. You know, if you want to go travel the world, go travel the world. Whatever it is, uh, it's very easy. We all always find tons of excuses not to fulfill our dreams, not to pursue our dreams. And that is because we're scared. That is because we're afraid of the unknown. That is because we, you know, I don't know. There are all kinds of reasons why we don't do things that we want, actually want to do deep in our heart. And I, th I believe that if you pursue your dreams, yes, it will be difficult. But if you do things that you enjoy, most of the time you're pretty good at it. And if you then persevere and have, you know, focus and discipline and a positive attitude, I think you can achieve anything you want. It won't be easy. It's very fulfilling if you uh, can fulfill your dreams. So if you have anything that you are thinking of for the past five years that you really want to do, go do it. If you need to quit your job for it, quit your job. It's an amazing experience. I've quit my job several times in my life. I've had several, I've been very fortunate enough to have several times, a couple of months off in my life voluntarily and explore things and explore my, uh, you know, whatever I want to do. And that's an absolutely fantastic experience in your life. Uh, I'm very fortunate. I'm aware of that. And I think, uh, yeah, if you want to be able to live a fulfilling life, I think you mean start following your dreams and start pursuing them. And that really uh, helped me. And hopefully it can help the listeners as well. That's incredible, Mark. And that is a fantastic note to end on. I want to thank you so much for sharing your journey, your lessons learned, your perspectives, your insights. It's been amazing to hear them and to get to share them with the audience. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. It's been amazing having you on the show. Well, thank you very much, Philippe. Uh, for, thank you for organizing these shows. I think it's great to participate and be able to share some of the things I've learned. I think we can all learn from each other. Thank you very much and good luck with the rest of the shows. Too kind. Thank you very much.
Thank you. Bye-bye. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommend it for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.